together. And we didn't do that. <laughs> we didn't do that the last few weeks. And so we just finished a major section in the book of Isaiah. So I thought now would be the perfect time to finish that chapter and do what I said we're going to do. And so here we are in John chapter 20, and we're looking at Doubting Thomas. Now it is obvious from the world around us that the world is falling apart. Now sometimes it's just not as obvious as as other times, is it? I mean, our lives are falling apart. We're getting older. We're, uh, they're, they're, the world around us is falling apart. My hair is starting to recede. You know, uh, It's crazy. All these things all around us. We see everything's falling apart. And we can feel unsafe with the helplessness and scared with all the events that are going on around us and uh, wonder um, and see ourselves in our smallness and our weakness because of all the events that are happening around us. And there are many voices that are trying to tell us answers and tell us what to do. They're trying to explain things to us and tell us what's going on behind the scenes, aren't there? Uh, There are countless voices. You see the news. We see Facebook. We see uh, countless many voices out there trying to explain to us What's going on and what are the answers? But my responsibility to you and your responsibility to each other is to continually lead each other to where the answers are found. Is to continually remind each other what the answer is. To continually remind ourselves what God has to say. Because God is the one who tells us what's going on. God is the one who tells us what the answers are. God is the one who tells us what the problems are. And we need to be realigned every single day. And that's what we do on Sundays, don't we? We direct ourselves in the right direction. We turn our attention towards God and what He has to say. And the good news is, God doesn't deny the reality that is all around us. In fact, the, the, the fact that the world is falling apart actually confirms the reliability of God's Word. Because that's exactly what the Word of God says is going to happen. And the Word of God says we can't figure out, we're not going to get better, we're continually falling apart, and there are going to continue to be problems. So, God tells us what the problem is. And I'm going to remind you what the problem is. The problem... The reason why there is decay, the reason why there is death, is because of unbelief. And unbelief is the foundation of all sin. Unbelief is rebellion against God. It's suppressing the truth. And Romans 1 verse 18 says it very well. When it says, all unbelief is ultimately suppressing the truth of God. And it is a failure to give thanks to God and failure to honor God as God. That's what unbelief is. And the result is the chaos, the decay, that even leads to death and eventually to judgment. But God tells us what the answer is. God tells us where life is found. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. John says this in 1 John 5, verse 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so the faith in God leads us to eternal life with God and to victory over every enemy and over every problem in this world. It's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it, how uncomplicated that little fact is, isn't it? It should not surprise you for this reason that the Bible was written for your faith. The whole Bible is written that we might believe. It's intended to lead you to believe so that you can have life in Christ. Where does faith come from? And we should all say together, I've said this every week for the past number of weeks, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the Word of God is constantly as we often say, is constantly showing us our hopelessness. The Word of God is like a mirror revealing our own weakness, our own sinfulness, our own helplessness. And so don't go to the Word of God to build up your self-esteem. You're reading it wrongly if you build up your self-esteem. And the Word of God continually magnifies Christ as the answer. And it says that He is the answer, that He is the Savior from beginning to end. And that's how it leads us to faith. And it should not surprise you that the Gospel of John is written that you might believe. And we see that right here in verses 30 through 31 in this passage that I read. That the book of John is written that you might believe and through believing have life in His name. Listen to these words that we read. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what that means is that John carefully selected everything he included in this, in this book. And uh, the intention of what he included, specifically chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 12, um, include a number of signs and every one of them Basically, a conclusion of all of them, of all those chapters, is to lead you to faith. And then chapters 13 through 21 are about the ultimate sign, the death of Christ. And all of this is included to lead you to believe so that you might have life. None of these signs were included willy-nilly, just random. (laughs) Um, They're all there for a purpose, to lead us to life in Christ. Does this make you interested in this book? Does this make you want to understand this book better? And I hope it does, because kind of what we're doing today is kind of a teaser. My aim and ambition, and we'll see if this happens or not, but my goal is to, after we finish Isaiah, to go right to John and to go through the Gospel of John. And finally, it should not surprise you that, that the purpose of this very passage that we're looking at today is to lead you to believe in Jesus Christ so that you might have life. Notice, Thomas's life is falling apart. All his hope has been, has been dashed against the rocks. He is in the most terrible condition you could ever imagine. His hope has been crucified. His life has been turned upside down. Everything is as bad as it could possibly get. And this passage shows us through, 
through uh, Thomas's example how victory comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He bears witness to the resurrection in an incredible way that gives reason to your faith today. And he also, on top of that, tells us what it means to confess that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so this story of doubting Thomas is for your faith today so that we might have life in Jesus. So first, in this passage, we see a former determined skeptic, right, become one of the greatest witnesses of the resurrection. And through his witness of the resurrected Christ, I want you to see the reasonableness of your faith. He bears witness to the reasonableness of your faith. So if you have come here this morning struggling to understand the reasonableness of the faith, if it really makes sense, if it is reasonable, or maybe you are a believer and you're hanging on by the threads, you're struggling, you can't seem to see the reasonableness of the Christian faith, or maybe you're a believer who is strong in the faith and needs to be reminded, and and that really is all of us, isn't it? Then this passage is for you. And before we look at the account, I want to ask a question. Why does it even matter if Christ was raised? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have encouragement in this life anyway? And so can't we say, well, um, at least we're believing in something? Why does it matter that Christ is raised? Why does it matter that we have a reasonable faith today and that Christ is indeed raised from the dead? And I want to remind you that the reason Christ came was to defeat sin, was to defeat the great problem, the great enemy, right? Through the cross. And so my sin was accredited to his account so that his righteousness might be credited to my account. He bore the weight of my sin so that I would no longer have to bear the weight of my sin. He became the substitute sacrifice through which I am declared righteous in the sight of God. And the resurrection is God's seal of approval, isn't it? That what Christ has done has been successful. That he has successfully accomplished what he came to do. So if there is no resurrection, then there is no forgiveness of sins. If there is not a real physical Christ, and if there is not a real death on the cross, and if there is not a real resurrection, then there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no hope for us. We are lost in our sins. And worst, if there is no resurrection, not only is he a failure, but he is a phony, he is a liar, and he is a crazy man. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if he is not raised, then you are still dead in your sins. But if he is raised from the dead, then there is no basis for unbelief. The most foolish thing in the world is not to believe in Christ. If he is raised from the dead, everything he said is beyond any doubt true and accurate. It is confirmed by his resurrection. Everything rests on the resurrection of Christ. 
So the question is, how does Thomas bear witness to the resurrected Christ in this passage? And Jesus, we are told, appears to ten of the disciples. And Thomas is excluded. He is not with them. We don't know why. But what the disciples do is they do everything they can after bearing witness to the resurrected Christ in uh, verses 19 through 20 of this chapter to convince Thomas that he is alive. And so we see that in verses 24 through 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And we don't know why Thomas was not with them. We're not told. We're not given a reason why. And so it doesn't really help to conjecture things here. It's not the purpose of what we're being told here for sure. Um, But we do know that the disciples and the verbs here and the language here tells us that they kept trying to convince Thomas. They kept trying to tell him, he is risen, he is alive. It's kind of like gang pressure, right? It's kind of like peer pressure. They're, They're trying to pressure him to believe, pressure evangelism. And so they tell him over and over again, he's alive, we saw him, I'm telling you, come on man, you gotta believe. He's alive. But despite their best efforts, Thomas cannot be convinced. So he is a a straight shooter, right? And he lays out what he requires if he is to believe in verse 25. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now if the ten disciples who saw Jesus are reasonable and trustworthy men, Why does Thomas not believe in them? Why does Thomas not come to the conclusion that, man, all ten of them saw this. He must be alive. He must be resurrected. And there are a number of reasons why he might be so difficult to convince that Jesus is alive. And one of them could be he just doesn't want to be duped again. You know, according to his understanding, his whole hope had been crucified. And he doesn't want to be duped. Perhaps he thinks, well, the other disciples are unable to distinguish um, between what is true and not true because their emotions have been so, because they are so distraught from their emotions at the death of Christ. Maybe they think what they see is a really good double or a ghost, you know. I mean, if you looked hard enough, you could probably see an outline of Jesus in every single tortilla that you looked at, right? I mean, if you looked hard enough and squinted and focused, you could probably see him everywhere. And so maybe that's what Thomas is thinking. They're so distraught that they are going to see him wherever they look. So Thomas throws down the gauntlet and declares the conditions that he requires if he is going to ever believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. And what does he demand here? He demands cold, hard facts, irrefutable evidence that Jesus is alive. He wants to be convinced that the one who died is the one who was raised from the dead. That the very one who was crucified is the very one who was raised. And that's why he mentions what he does. I must touch the, the, the scars in his hands and the scar in his side. And that sounds kind of gruesome, doesn't it? But it's kind of, it makes sense when you understand that everyone who was crucified, you could have, you would see scars in their hands, wouldn't you? And you would see scars in their, in their feet. But not everyone was pierced in the side. This is what made Jesus' death 
uh, really unique from the others. And so he's asking, I want irrefutable evidence that this is the one who died, that this is in fact Jesus who was raised from the dead. Now we have to be careful, don't we? Not to be too hard on doubting Thomas. He should have believed. Don't get me wrong. But you have to understand that the other disciples did see Jesus alive, didn't they? And Thomas did not see Jesus alive. And so he is really not much different than the rest of them when it comes down to it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus accepts the challenge, doesn't he? He gives him concrete evidence of the resurrection that Thomas is looking for. One week later, the disciples are gathered together in the room. The doors are locked probably for fear of the, of the Jews. And Thomas, this time, was present with them. And Jesus miraculously enters the locked room. I love that. And he says, peace be with you. Amazing words, right? I mean, there is no more timely words than what Jesus says there. Peace refers to well-being, doesn't it? Peace refers to total well-being. If this is the case, then there has never been more truer words than what Jesus says here. Jesus' presence with them literally means peace is with you. When Jesus is with us, when we are in Christ, then we have peace as much as you could ever have in this world. And we have the promise of experiencing the perfect peace in his presence for eternity. All because of the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. But the next statement is what makes this remarkable. Jesus, who was not there when Thomas made these incredible requirements, right? When he said these words, knows exactly what Thomas required. Notice, knows exactly what Thomas said in private, and he takes him up on the challenge in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He says, touch my side. He said, touch the nail holes in the nail in my hands and my feet. And what amazing love that Jesus condescends. He, he, is, he humbles himself before the requirements of Thomas. And, and, and shows him what he is requiring to believe. What an amazing, gracious, and merciful, and kind, and loving God that he would do this. He does not have to do this, but he does. Then Jesus tells Thomas, the one thing that actually makes perfect sense in this situation, do not be unbelieving, but believe. This is the only right response to the situation, isn't it? Jesus is demanding what he has already proven. He has removed all grounds of unbelief by showing himself to him. And so he demands, he says, Thomas, believe, believe. And what is Thomas's response? He believes. We don't know if he actually put his hands into his side or touched his fingers. We're not told if he does or not. But we do know that he responds properly by his confession of faith. Jesus what he does here is enough to convince the most hardened skeptic that he is alive. And Thomas' witness to the resurrected Christ reminds us of how reasonable our faith is. I want you to understand today that our faith is not unreasonable. That our faith is perfectly reasonable. 
We have every reason to have faith that Jesus is raised from the dead. And Thomas' skepticism in an amazing way actually works to add credibility to his testimony that Jesus is alive. You see, Thomas was not a pushover. You can't say that he wanted to believe so badly that he would believe anything. And so what appears to be the worst situation, what appears to be something that could not work for the good of God's people, what appears to be the greatest shame, turns out to be something that God uses throughout the, the age of the church to show the reasonableness of the faith that we have to each one of us. You have the greatest confirmation you could possibly have that Jesus is alive from the lips of man. This means that our faith is not based on some pie-in-the-sky dream, wishful thinking, because we want to believe in it. You don't have to close your minds to become a Christian. Isn't that great? You don't have to leave your cranium at the door. It's more logical to believe than not to believe. The testimony of Scripture is not some subpar basis for your faith. It is reliable, credible testimony of the resurrected Christ. And as he did this for Thomas, he left behind a credible witness for those who, unlike Thomas, would not be able to see with our eyes the resurrected Christ. But what you also have to remember is though such evidence is good and helpful, yet it is not enough to save anyone, is it? All the evidence in the world is not enough in itself to save anyone. What is required is a heart transformation by the Holy Spirit. And I want to make it very clear that this evidence is very important. It is absolutely essential that we know that we have a reasonable faith. But yet, at the same time, not all the evidence in the world will not be able to save anyone. And we know that what brought Thomas to the point of faith to worship God is not the power of reason, It's not the apostolic testimony or seeing Jesus. It was the opening of the eyes of his heart by the Holy Spirit to see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You question, how can a man like Richard Dawkins be so intellectually smart, perhaps one of the smartest people in the world, and yet be so foolish in everything that is of any real consequence? You see, the Bible would call Richard Dawkins a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so how can such a smart person not believe despite all the evidence in the world? And the answer is because it's not primarily about the presence of evidence that keeps people away from the faith, but rather our hearts that are blind to the glory of God and the gospel. Listen to what Paul said regarding this very truth in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We need the veil removed if we are to see the glory of God in the gospel. And so that's why we pray. And that's why we hold the word of God in front of you. Because we know that that's how God works to save. If you asked Thomas, why do you believe? I'm sure he would say, well, I saw evidence before me, right? If we're to look at it from our experience. But we know, and I'm sure he knows, that ultimately it was the Holy Spirit 
who opened his eyes to see the glory of God in the gospel. Second, we hear in this passage a former skeptic give one of the greatest confessions in all of Scripture concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. So you might ask, what does it mean that Jesus is raised from the dead? And right here, we are given in this confession what it means that Jesus is raised from the dead. The confession Thomas makes is found in verse 28. He says to Jesus, he confesses, my Lord and my God. So what do these words mean? What is Thomas's confession in these verses? Well, it means exactly what it appears to be saying, doesn't it? Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. And both of these titles refer to his deity. That he is the supreme being overall. Thomas uh, or, or Thomas is attributing to Jesus the title of supreme being. Here is an un- unambiguous confession that Jesus is indeed God. He is speaking of Jesus with the highest words that language could ever afford or articulate. There is no loftier words that you could ever attribute to anyone than what Thomas says about Jesus. So do you feel the weight of these words? Do you feel the weight of the confession that Thomas makes here? Whether or not you or I can articulate what Thomas does here in this confession, this is what saving faith confesses. This is what saving faith believes in the heart. You see, saving faith believes that Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus is supreme over all else. But simply believing that Jesus is Lord and God is not enough to save anyone. You see, the devil himself knows that Jesus is Lord and God. He doesn't like it, but he knows it. Saving faith goes further and believes that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Do you notice what Thomas says here? He makes this truth personal. He, in a sense, is submitting to the reality. He's agreeing with the truths in his heart by saying he is my Lord and my God. And that is absolutely essential if anyone is ever to be saved, that we confess Not just knowledge-wise that he is Lord and God, the supreme being, but that we confess personally in agreement that he is my Lord and he is my God. Otherwise, you have no part of Jesus in his salvation. Your mind and your heart must confess the truth. These words here are truly words of repentance, aren't they? And you might say, well, I don't see repentance here. But when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are repenting from ourselves being Lord and God of our lives, from ourselves being the center of our universe. And we are saying, there is one who is supreme, whom I am accountable to, one whom I come under and bow before, who determines what is right and wrong, and who determines what is required of me. And so this is repentance, what we see in Thomas's words here, in confessing Jesus as Lord. Some people say that bowing to Jesus as Lord is a second stage of salvation, don't they? They say, well, you can receive Jesus as Savior and then later on receive him as Lord. But right here we're reminded that that is not true. (laughs) That is just unbiblical. 
Um, Jesus must be received as Lord. And truly, we don't understand all that that means. I don't today. And uh, neither do you. But we do confess that he is Lord and we are not. And that is a requirement for being saved, is bowing to Jesus as Lord and God. Saving faith also believes that Jesus' work on the cross is the only basis for my salvation and that his work is sufficient. We are not saved on our goodness, right? The scars we see in his body continue to show and bear witness that he is the spotless Lamb of God, the only sacrifice who is sufficient to take away the sins of the world. And because he is God incarnate, he is able to save us. What an awesome thought. So we do not define what is required to be saved, do we? We don't, re- we don't define what God requires to be saved. We don't go to him or we don't try to determine what do I think is the best way to understand how to be saved. That is the most foolish thing ever, isn't it? God is the one who determines how to be saved. And I know this sounds so basic and so obvious, but sometimes as Christians, I think we really want to determine how to be saved. We want to use scriptures and mix it with our own ideas of how one is saved. And we have to be careful that we take what God's word says alone, because God is the one who defines how to be saved, and no one else does. God's word tells us this in Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So why does he make such a confession? We come to the point and ask the question, why does he make such a, such a, a gigantic confession as he does here? What, what compelled him to this conclusion? And the answer is, Because Jesus is alive. And uh, really, this confession is simply an expression of what it means that Jesus is alive. It's that simple, isn't it? Thomas doesn't need to get out his theology book. When he sees Jesus alive, he doesn't need to get out his theology book and try to figure out what it means. (laughs) He doesn't have to try to put the puzzle pieces together when he sees Jesus alive. Because that's what it means. For Jesus to be alive means that everything he said is true. Beyond any doubt, it confirms what he said is true. And what Jesus said is that he is Lord and that he is God. And his resurrection in itself confirms that, that he overcame death. This confession brilliantly fits in as the apex or the pinnacle of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of the, or the gospel of John. And John, as the narrator, actually made a similar statement about Jesus in the very first verse of the book. Listen to what John said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what the narrator says before the story even really begins as an introduction. And then, notice, this is the confession throughout the Gospel of John. If you look throughout the Gospel of John, you'll see almost veiled, somewhat veiled, and some very clear statements that point to the fact that Jesus is God. Listen to some of these verses. John 14, verse 9. Do you not know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 5, verse 23. Jesus explains that God has entrusted all judgment into his hands in order that, and listen to this, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then John 5, verse 19. 
Jesus declares, before Abraham was born, I am. And then, uh, I'm sorry, that was John 8, verse 58. And then again in John 5, verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Do you see this declaration throughout the Gospel of John? But it is only fitting that his own disciple give the clearest and most profound statement in the Gospel of John so far after the resurrection, confirming what this means in the clearest and most profound way. And that's exactly what we see here. Towards the very end of the Gospel of John, Thomas makes the most profound confession of who Jesus is. That he is indeed my Lord and my God. And his resurrection confirms it. So this is entirely fitting that we see this here. So how do we know this confession is accurate? Have you ever wondered that? How do we know this is true? How do we know that uh, Thomas is not kind of like just saying something like as an exclamation, you know? You know, like we might use God's name in vain, right? Or how do we know that Jesus even accepts this statement? And uh, it's it's... It helps us to understand the reality of what the statement is by understanding that, first of all, Thomas would not have used Jesus' name in vain, (laughs) would he have? He would never have used the name of God in vain, as we see in the statement here. a, A Jewish person would never have done that. But on top of that, we need to see that Jesus does not in any way Um, rebuke him for the statement. Did you notice that? Jesus does not rebuke him. And if you notice in the Bible, there are different times when, 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 when someone is worshipped, such as Paul and Barnabas. If you remember in Acts verse 14, 15, they were being worshipped. They rebuked them for worshipping them, saying, we are not God, don't worship us. But here Jesus doesn't rebuke them. And not only does Jesus not rebuke them, but he blesses this confession. He blesses it. He confirms it. He says, this is absolutely true. What is confessed here? Notice in verse 29, he says this. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does it mean to be blessed? That's the question. What does it mean to be blessed? And uh, one way we can think of it is to be in a happy happy, a good well-being, a state of well-being. Well, blessed, to be blessed means more than that. To be blessed means to be in God's favor, to be looked upon favorably by God. It means to have God's favorable disposition upon you. God's favor means life today and eternal life in the future. So Jesus says that all who make this confession are blessed. Just as Thomas was blessed, although he had seen Jesus, so are those who do not see blessed. And, and the blessing is ultimately that we are under God's favor. And there's no greater place to be. So the question is this. Is this your confession? Are you blessed along with all who have believed because of the reasonableness of Scripture? Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? 
And it should be encouraging to each one of our hearts that God can take the most determined skeptic in Thomas and bring out of him the supreme confession of who Jesus is. A.W. Pink said this, Doubting Thomas was the one who gave the strongest and most conclusive testimony to the absolute deity of the Savior, Savior which ever came from the lips of man. Just as the railing thief became the one to own Christ's lordship from the cross, just as timid Joseph and Nicodemus were the ones who honored the Lord's body of the Savior, just as the woman were the boldest at the sepulcher, just as the unfaithful Peter was the one whom Christ bade feed my sheep. And what he says is, is profound. He says, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. And how true is that of Thomas? That God took the most hardened skeptic and from him came this great confession. So you should ask yourself, is this your confession? Is this the confession of your heart? Not just do you say these words, but is this the confession that comes from the bottom of your heart? If you claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, and this is not your confession, then I am skeptical of you. I don't think it's possible for such people to exist. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? If so, then this is your confession. Sometimes we have this idea that unbelief is a natural position and faith is the ideal position. What I mean to say that unbelief is a neutral position and that faith is the ideal position. But that's not true at all. Unbelief is not a neutral position. (laughs) Throughout the Bible, we need to understand that unbelief is rebellion against God. It's an opposition to God. It's the heart of all sin. Nothing is neutral about unbelief. Salvation looks like repenting of our unbelief and confessing the truth that Jesus is our Lord and Savior based on the finished work of of Christ on the cross. And this is why God commands everyone everywhere to repent. He doesn't suggest you repent. He commands that everyone everywhere repent. And this is why the righteous will live by faith, according to Romans 1, verse 17. And this is why the reason we meet together is to encourage each other to continue in the faith. We meet with each other to continue to encourage each other because our faith is essential for our lives. We must keep our faith alive through the Word of God and through encouraging each other. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we gather together. This is what we should be doing for each other all the time. We should be telling each other what Jesus told Thomas. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. We live in a troubled world. We have troubled lives. And the only solid ground to stand upon when the world is falling apart all around us is the finished work of Christ. The only way to walk on solid ground is to walk by faith in Christ. Those who are believing with Thomas who share his confession, have nothing to fear. Even if the world falls apart and our health fails, we have nothing to fear. We are standing on solid ground. They can trust and they can sing with their whole being that it is well with my soul. You are truly in a good place. And remember what 1 John 5 verse 4 through 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Dear Father, there is no one like you. Lord, we thank you that you reign supreme over heaven and earth. We thank you that you are the one who formed us and fashioned us and created us and brought us into being. Lord, we bow to you this morning. We confess that you are Lord and God. And Lord, I ask you that you would continue to impress upon our hearts, Lord, the glory of God in the gospel. I pray that you'd open up our eyes to see more clearly the greatness of who you are. May our hearts worship and praise you as you so rightly deserve. May you enable us to say and confess the truth, not only with our words, not only with our minds, but also with our affections and our heart. Lord, may we be a confessing people. And Lord, may we continually be reminded that we have a reasonable faith today, that we have a faith that is more reasonable than anything else. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, may we go out and tell the world that you are alive and that there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you bring great conviction to their hearts and that you'd show them that there is salvation in your name and that they would run to you in Jesus' name. Amen.